Thanks, Andrew. Um, well, I was afraid I was going to forget it was Father's Day today because it's also my 12-year anniversary. Um, are there any other anniversaries in the house? Because I feel like June 20th is not popular. I thought it was popular. It is? Really? Happy anniversary. Um, and in our home, just so you know how Father's Day goes, Eden is our oldest. She wakes up this morning. I'm like, hey, tell Dad it's happy Father's Day. And she goes, Dad, it's Father's Day. Don't do anything Mom doesn't like. <laughs> I was like, it's basically true, you know? It's basically true. Um, happy Father's Day. All he does is work out. So, I mean, I don't really need to think. I'm just kidding. Um, no, my husband, Chad, uh, we got married 12 years ago. We went to uh, Baylor University in Waco, Texas, right? We won the national championship this year. So, yeah, anyway, um, we met, and when we were in college, we went to an Antioch there. We went to um, the, the church plant that was there, and it was, we'd both grown up in Christian homes, but it became the catalyst for us to launch us into our own um, passionate walk with God. It helped us stay pure in college, dating. It helped us want to raise our families on mission. And so anyway, when Andrew and Heather, we moved up here and there was no Antioch. We were part of awesome church plants. Andrew and Heather said they wanted to plant a church here and our hearts very quickly were like, we're doing this. We were just sad that some of our friends, we would leave. Turns out a lot of those friends came with us. So that was a perk. Um, it's been great. But I wanted to take a minute and just honor Andrew and Heather um, for anyone who doesn't know them. So if y'all would stand up because, yes, yes, yeah. So Andrew and Heather are some of our closest friends, but I think what I wanted to honor them specifically for today was saying yes to God in their mid-20s to plant a church in a very saturated area, in a place that already had a lot of churches. And you and I are here today because they said yes. And we get to say our own yeses. So it's both an encouragement for them and an encouragement for us to just continue to say yes to the adventure with God. I think they were between Dubai and Malibu, so I don't know how Indianapolis won out. But I'm, I'm glad for our sake it did. Um, but today we're going to continue. We've been studying the book of Revelation. Who has loved these letters? And as it's been a continuation, honestly, of the biblical formation series that Andrew started off the year doing. If you miss that, you'll want to go back and listen to it. And one of the things that Andrew keeps saying that I love is that the point of the Bible is not us. It's not to learn about me. It's not to learn about even the world. It's not to learn about the church, although we learn about all those things. It's to learn about God. And so as we approach the book of Revelation, it is also similar. We're approaching this book because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as he's speaking, just put yourself in this position. If Jesus were to write the letter of Antioch and in Indianapolis, what would he say to us today? That's the kind of expectation we want to carry as we go into these letters. So we're going to stand up to read this letter to the church in Sardis today. Um, ironically, when Andrew sent out uh, an email to the content team, hey, I think I'm going to do the letters to Revelation. Do you remember this? I wrote him back and I was like, can I do Sardis? And he said, no. <laughs> but I'm here. So I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Um, Chad, this is dying. Can you help me? 
Sorry, Chad is going to help me while we read this. We're going to read the Revelation, not dying, it's locking on me. We're going to read this letter, and you're actually going to read it too, because this is what I find. He also fixes it. Yeah, we're going to fix No, no, every, not you. Okay. Everyone's going to read this, okay? Which might feel awkward because it's like six verses, but I want your brains to engage in a different way. And I know from sitting here having Andrew read it to me, sometimes when I don't read it, I don't get it, okay? So we're all going to read it. It'll be up on the screen. When Chad is done, oh my gosh, pressure's on, Chad. It's fine, we'll just do this, it's fine. I'll just keep tapping it. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay, to the letter. <laughs> We're gonna read the letter to Sardis if I can ever open this again. I don't have the right face. It's like, this isn't your face. Okay, ready, set, go. Into the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Y'all can sit down. It's an intense letter. Did y'all get that as you read it, or were you listening to yourselves read? I'm going to read it again. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the book of Revelation and this letter, nothing is haphazard. Jesus is so smart. He's so brilliant. The Holy Spirit is so smart that everything that was written in this letter applied to a specific church in time. It applies to the apocalyptic church whenever that time is, and it applies to us wherever we fit on that spectrum. So I want us to come to this letter with an expectation of Jesus, what do you have to say to me today through the letter in Sardis, using even the physical example of the church of Sardis in history, what it meant then and what it means for us today. 
as you kind of got from this letter, usually the letters flow kind of the same way. There's Jesus introduces himself. He takes characteristics from Revelation 1 when he's first revealed and he takes a part of that description and he puts it on the front end of the letter because it applies specifically to what he's trying to say to this church. And then usually there's an encouragement. Now the encouragement is lacking in Sardis. So this is just like a freebie that sometimes the Lord comes and speaks to you and if it's only ever encouragement, you might wanna listen more. Sometimes he only has a healthy rebuke. And as a parent, I know how this feels. There is a child who will remain nameless in my home who continually crosses the street without looking to go to our neighbor's houses, okay? We've told this child, I won't even give a gender, we've told this child many times, please cross the street and look both ways first though, right? And this child doesn't. And I know that there are cars that whip around this neighborhood. I've actually been chewed out by a mom before because my kids cross the street without looking. So I know, right? This is Jesus in this letter. There's a sense of urgency to what he's trying to say to the church in this letter. And he is concerned. He's not concerned like, oh, this could hurt you. He's like, this could kill you. If you don't listen to me, this could kill you. So this is the kind of letter that we're actually getting into today. And I think the first thing that Jesus wants us to know, including to this letter to this church in Sardis, is that he is the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, why is that important? Well, Sardis in history was one of the wealthiest cities in the Lydian Empire, okay? So it was very, very wealthy. It was doing great. They had gold literally in their riverbanks. They were the first ones to mint a coin. So they were doing well as a city. They were very prominent, but they became known as a luxury-loving, pleasure-seeking, easy city. So even to the pagans, the name Sardis was not, it wasn't um, associated with good things. It was just kind of like the hedonistic group of Sardis people. So the church itself has drifted into a state of apathy. They actually lost their standing publicly and didn't even know it. They wanted to erect um, a, a temple to the emperor or a statue to the emperor. And he's like, no, you guys aren't relevant anymore. They didn't even know that they weren't relevant anymore. And this is what Jesus is saying. He says, I am the one who has the seven spirits of God and I hold the seven stars. And why is he saying this? Because he wants to remind them that he's God, okay? I think sometimes we are tempted. Now there's like a popular t-shirt, which I'm gonna put on the screen if they have the picture of it. One, two, three. Ta-da. What does that say? Jesus is my homeboy. So I looked that up on Urban Dictionary and it means closest friend. Jesus is my closest friend, which is true, right? He's invited us into intimacy. And there's this attitude sometimes of like, Jesus is my best friend, therefore he approves of every decision I make, right? Like he's my best friend. He totally agrees we should watch this show. He totally agrees that we don't like this person. You know, this person comes around and I'm totally okay talking bad about them because Jesus is my homeboy. And I think the church in Sardis has drifted into this idea of like, Jesus is our equal. You know, he calls us brothers, like, what? We're equal. And Jesus is coming and he's like, we are not equal. John, in, in Revelation chapter one, he was the one, John is the disciple, he was called the beloved disciple, right? He's leaning against Jesus' chest. He's the one who outraces Peter to the tomb. He's the one that Jesus on the cross is like, behold your son, mom, behold your son. And he gives Mary to John to take care of. They're best friends. But what's John's reaction when he sees the resurrected Jesus in Revelation 1? What does he do? 
Do y'all know? He falls at his feet as though dead. Jesus can be your closest friend as long as you remember he is not you. He is not like you. He is not like me. And he alone has the words of life. Remember Peter, he says this whole thing about his body and his bread and being bread and like you have to eat and drink me. And Peter's like, everyone starts leaving and Jesus says, are you gonna leave too? Peter says, where else would we go? You're the only one who has words of life. So this letter might feel uncomfortable, but where else are you gonna go? <laughs> He's the only one who has words of life for you and for me today. Okay, so we're gonna get into actually what he says. He says first, I know your works. You have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. I know your works. Now, this church, I think, if you look even in history, the synagogue in Sardis was really large, which means there were a lot of Jews, which means there were a lot of converted Jews from Judaism to Christianity, most likely. And the church in Sardis had a good reputation. That word reputation literally means you have a name. You have a name for being alive, but you're actually dead. I think there is a sentiment in America that we've been a Christian country, right? And there's also this Christian subculture where we know now because thanks to YouTube and social media, we kind of know the church rhythm. We know how to worship. We know how to feel good in worship. We know how to have all the right language. We can have a reputation for being alive. We can show up at all the conferences and buy all the right books and be in a bunch of different life groups and things. We can have a reputation for being alive, but Jesus, because he's king, knows the heart. He's the only one who can say, I know your works. I know you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Now there's a deadness where we die to our flesh and we're alive to God, but then there's a deadness where we're not quite dead to our flesh. Jeremy Riddle talks about this. He wrote a book this year called Reset, and it's very good. It's for worship leaders, but I actually read it as a non, as like just a lay person. It was so good. One of the things he talks about is from The Princess Bride. Y'all remember that movie? And there's the groom who dies, and they bring him in front of the witch doctor, and the witch doctor's like, he's not dead. He's mostly dead, right? And then he raises him up. So Christians, in our half-surrendered state, we become mostly dead. You can't raise up a mostly dead thing. You have to raise up a dead thing. Now this church says, we think we're alive, but they're actually dead and they're not even dead enough to be resurrected. They haven't even surrendered enough to be able to be resurrected and the reason they're dead is for the wrong reasons. And one of the commentaries I wrote, it said that Sardis was a city that, or a church that had peace, but it wasn't the peace of the living, it was the peace of the dead. They weren't actually partaking in the life of Jesus. They were so pleasure-seeking. They loved ease so much they were no longer relevant. In a commentary, it said that they were so inoffensive because they refused to stand for anything. There's a place in Jesus, I'm not talking about politically standing for like different people or things and all of that, the weirdness. I'm saying we stand for Jesus. I'm saying we're not ashamed to stand for him. We wanna say that we're alive. This is what he says after that. So he says that you have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. And then he says, wake up. Wake up. Have any of you had a wake up call? Was COVID for any of you a good wake up call? 
I think it was, in some ways, for the church, we got so busy doing our normal things, and then all of a sudden, something happened, and it had us kind of assess, why are we doing this? Why are we rushing around? What's the point of the way that we're living our lives, and do we really want to live this way anymore? Did any of you experience that on a small scale, personally? I did, too. This is still not opening, Chad, which is interesting. Look down to unlock. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. Here we go. It's fine. Okay, so he says, wake up. Now, this, this reminded me, actually, when Andrew and Heather first moved to Indianapolis, they said they had this like, prophetic word over our city. It's not a very encouraging prophetic word, so I'm just going to warn you on the front end. They said that they felt the words white noise over our city. So how many of you have kids and you love sound machines? I love sound machines. I love a sound machine in my own room. And why do I love a sound machine? What does a sound machine do? It puts me to sleep because it's white noise. The white noise sometimes of our church busyness, of the here and there and our inability to sit before the Lord has put them to sleep, this church in Sardis. And at times it can put us to sleep. And the first thing Jesus says is wake up, wake up. Now this echoes, this is what I love about the book of Revelation. I think Andrew has shared this before. There are 500 allusions to the Old Testament within the book of Revelation, but then also a bunch of the New Testament is also in Revelation. So the Revelation isn't this random book put on the end of the Bible that's like, we don't know what to do with you, so we'll put you in the back and no one's gonna make it there, you know? <laughs> it's not like that, it's an important book. And this is what he says, Jesus actually says this in Luke chapter 12. He's talking to the, his disciples and he's telling telling them to wake up, and I cannot, there we go. Guys, just, we're all gonna bear with one another, okay? Okay, so he says, in Luke 12, he says, stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." It is important that we are like those widows that have enough oil. Not widows, what are they, virgins? It's different than widows. Virgins who have oil in their lamps, who are willing to stay awake when all of life is putting you to sleep through you getting your own agenda done, through you continuing school, getting this other degree, through you building your house, getting your pool put in, whatever the things are that put you to sleep, the Lord is saying today, it's time to wake up. I'm coming at an hour you don't expect. In Romans 12, there was a verse at the start of quarantine, the Lord began to um, lay on my heart that I began to pray, it was in the message. It says, don't burn out, keep yourselves fueled in a flame. Keep yourselves fueled in a flame. The terrifying truth is Jesus will not make you stay awake. Jesus will not shake you awake. Sometimes he does, but most of the time it's you learning to fan the flame in your own heart and staying alert and staying expectant. 
and that he's actually going to come. Now, the interesting thing is about Sardis, in history, two times, they were taken captive and they were actually attacked because of their failure to watch. Now, the upper part of the city of Sardis was high on a hill. I have a picture of it, I think, that we could show. It's the ruins, so imagine, this is kind of what it looked like, up high, it was hard to reach. And back then when they didn't have like airplanes and helicopters, it was very hard to scale. And King Cyrus comes, now this is what a commentary said, it said, this softness in the people of Sardis, this lack of discipline and dedication was the doom of Sardis on a few different occasions. There seemed to be no way, keeps, sorry Chad, I don't know why I'm calling, I'm sorry to you. Uh, there seemed to be no way to scale the steep cliff walls surrounding the city. King Cyrus offered a rich reward to any soldier in his army who could figure out a way to get up to the city. One soldier studied the problem carefully, and as he looked, a soldier defending Sardis dropped his helmet off the cliff walls. He watched as the soldier climbed down a hidden trail to recover it, and he marked the location of the trail and then led a detachment of troops up to the city. So there was a softness, a lack of discipline, a lack of dedication. They weren't even guarding some parts of the city wall because they assumed they were so safe. Does that speak to us? This is actually the city. How genius is the Holy Spirit that this is relevant for us? Two, two times this happened to them in history. Guys, what parts of the walls of our heart are we not guarding? Are we just kind of letting down our guard? Like, it's okay. And sometimes we perceive that the silence of Jesus is his agreement. Right? Like, oh, he has, nothing bad's happened yet. I might as well just keep doing what I'm doing. But imagine if this letter came to you, wake up. Wake up. And this is what he says. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. It means to make stable and firm. And what's so wonderful about Jesus is he's saying, there are things in you, you were dead, but there are things that are remaining, that are about to die. That word about to die or that phrase can be true of trees which dry up or seeds which rot when planted. It gives the idea that we're not caring for what God has given us. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. There's something in the kindness of God that he still has work for this church to do. And this is almost like a last call for them, a place where he's saying, I'm going to come, but I'm giving you another chance to strengthen what remains and to complete the works that I've given you. And this is how they complete it. He says, remember then what you have received and heard. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, God tells his people, his covenant people, he says to remember what God did. Remember, tell your children the things that he did. Remember, recite the stories of God in your own life because they are counselors to you. They counsel you on the nature of God. There's something about life that makes us forget who God is and what he does. It makes us forget our own stories. I know some of you are familiar with our story that when our son was diagnosed with cancer, we put a bucket in our backyard and we would check the bucket. We said, God, if you want Cade to be done with um, chemotherapy, we will check the bucket. If there's a fish in the bucket, we'll know we're done. So the very last week of chemotherapy, it got cut short because of some different complications and then we had rescanned because there was some new spots on Cade's lungs and they said it's probably back and he has a 10% chance of survival. They'd have to do test tube chemos and it was like really, really, um, it was bad, okay? So the last week of chemo, we're about to have these other treatments and tests and everything. 
he doesn't get the last chemo treatment, and then we rescan, and they call us, and they say, the spots are gone. We don't know what happened, but the spots are gone. Put them, put them in school. So, yeah, so we're like, what? In that weekend, Chad goes and check, gets the bucket. It has rolled, it's never done this before, to the bottom of our property, where we have a little pond, and there's like an inch of dark water. So he picks up the bucket, dumps it out, and a fish plops out of the bucket. Right? <clears throat> like, that's so cool. There was literally a fish in the bucket. I have not seen a fish in our pond, I don't think, since then. It was a very small fish, but we got it mounted. It's like, small mount, small fish. It still took a full year to even, anyway, for them to, whatever they had to do to a small fish. But, so our, our, uh, we told our oncologist, who's not a believer, and she would say to us, trust the fish, after the scans, trust the fish. So we're like, trust the fish, trust the fish, trust the fish. Well, how, how many of you know like a year goes by and you're no longer trusting the fish? You kind of forget there is a story about a fish. And as you're retelling your own story, you're like, you're right, that's amazing. I don't know why I'm freaking out anymore. This is what remembering what you have received does to you. And the danger is to forget what you've received. That when we forget, we are failing to steward the story that God's given us. Also, remembering the simplicity of the gospel. If you read all throughout the New Testament, Paul says, I've come to you with nothing else but basically the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's really simple. It's so simple, you're gonna wanna add to it. It's so simple, you're gonna wanna think that all these other things are important and he wants to bless up your life and blah, 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 and make the gospel more frilly, right? Like this is not selling well. How can we make this more appealing? And I think the church in Sardis might have been struggling with this exact thing. How do we make this more palatable for people? And yet Jesus is coming and he's saying, remember what you have received and heard. And then he says, keep it, keep it. That word means guard it. Guard the gospel, guard the simplicity of it. Do you guys realize how much of your social media feeds are people trying to brainwash you? And it's everywhere. Even in airports, like you're like, what does that have to do with my emotions? Like me flying on a plane, but they're, they're trying to, not they like some distant evil, but kind of but trying to brainwash you. And you have to guard what you know to be true. And the way you guard it is to remember it. It's why literally in the Old Testament, God was like, tattoo this on your forehead. So the Israelites would walk around with little boxes on their forehead with the Old Testament in it because they were trying to take it literally. Well, we would do well to take it literally, to say, I'm going to guard this. He says, keep it and repent. Now, I love the word repent. I love the invitation to repent. I wear everything on my sleeve, so it's really easy for me to repent because I have a lot of need to repent a lot. Some of you maybe don't as much as I do. Maybe you should. But the idea is that repentance comes from the same root word as the word metamorphosis. It's a word metaneo. It means to completely change. So when I'm repenting, I'm changing. My friend Heather Scriba this week knew I was gonna be speaking on Sardis, and she sent me a quote from Dan Allender who runs um, like psychology, I think. Anyway, he's theology, spirituality, psych anyway. He's very smart and she sent me a quote. I'm gonna try to unlock this again. He, she sent me a quote on repentance, which I wanted to read to you because I thought it was so wonderful the way it says this. It says, repentance is much more freeing and life-giving than what most people perceive it to be. That's good news. It's the beginning of an awareness that it is time to come home. 
Repentance is an internal shift in our perceived source of life. Now, I've had a few wake-up calls when my son was diagnosed and when I broke my back where the Lord used those situations to bring about repentance in my heart for how I had made my source of life so many other things. I'd made my source of life ease. I'd made my source of life the things I could do, the things I identified with. And when the Lord took away all those things, maybe it wasn't the Lord, maybe it was circumstances, but regardless, the things left, and I remembered, oh yeah, you're, all my springs are in you, right? All my fountains are in you. You're the source of life. Jeremiah, God says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, and they've run after broken cisterns that can't even hold water. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. There is a call in this church to Sardis where he's saying, remember where your life comes from. It doesn't come from the fact that you were able to get gold a lot and be really rich and you're a great city and you're high on a hill and you're well fortified. Nothing bad ever happens to you. He's saying, remember, I'm your source of life. And then he says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now I was talking to Chad about this. Why does he come like a thief? Because all through the New Testament too, Jesus says, I'll come like a thief. You won't know what day. I'll come like a thief. A thief comes and steals something, right? What if Jesus is coming to take back what's his? To take back the deposit that's his. I'll come like a thief. If you won't watch out, you won't get to walk with me in white. If you won't watch out, I'm coming to take back what's mine. And I'm coming at an hour that you don't know. This is consistent actually with his nature. In Isaiah 11, talking about the seven spirits in the beginning of the letter, I'm the one who has the seven spirits of God. Isaiah 11, it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then he says, this is about Jesus. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now listen to this. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. That is not the warm, cuddly Jesus that we sometimes franchise. (laughs) That is the righteous judge. He should instill a healthy fear in us. Watch out. I will come like a thief. I will come back. It will be when you don't expect. Stay awake. Not only that, but make sure the name that you have is the right name. In the next verses, I love this. He says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. There are still a few who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Mark Sayers wrote a book called The Disappearing Church, and he was talking about how church history has this ebb and flow to it, where what happens is people get upset at what's happening in the world. They start creative minorities, is what he calls it, people who host the presence of God. They go after the real things. The creative minorities get popular. The popularity drives them into no longer being relevant to the things of God, and then the church dies down, but a creative minority is left. The creative minority again starts underground. They grow together. And this is what Jesus is saying is happening in Sardis. There are still a few. There are still a few who haven't soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white. He says, you still have a few names. They'll walk with me in white for they are worthy. What does someone with a new name and walking in white remind you of? A bride. Now, it's my anniversary, so that might have been on my mind. 
But Jesus is saying, there are still a few that I'm coming back for and they're gonna marry me. They're gonna marry me and this is why. You know, last week, Andrew set us up with Thyatira and not worshiping idols and we're engaged to Jesus where he's our bridegroom and yet there is a call for that. When I married Chad, this was like the best day of my life besides the days I had my kids. But I loved becoming a Fregee. And with that name, I inherited a history. And I also inherited a standard. I was recently in Bethel. Um, we'd gone to Reading, and this guy, this great guy, came up to me, and he was like, you're Bill Fregee's daughter-in-law. And he was like, Bill Fregee's like the Bill Johnson of the business world. And I was like, yeah, he is. And like, I'm like that, too. You just don't know me. I'm just kidding. But I was so proud to be Pops's daughter-in-law. And I was like, wow, I have that name. And he might have been watching me and how I lived and been like, well, that stinks that she's associated with him or not. But Jesus is saying, there are still a few of you who have not soiled your garments and they will walk with me in white. White is an association with heaven and it's an association with purity. In that same Jeremy Riddle book, he talks about this principle of wearing white. And this is what he says. A lot of times we don't know how dirty something is until purity comes on the scene. You can think of yourself as a generally clean person, but you wear a white shirt for a day. Chances are your thinking will change. It's not that your white shirt is being vindictive. It's just revealing how clean you really are. Purity has a way of exposing lesser things. It reveals all things cheapened, polluted, and compromised. Again, it's not that purity is trying to make anything and anyone look bad. It just has an exposing power. These people have walked with him in white. They have not soiled their garments. We receive an identity all through the Old Testament. Jesus says, God says, I'm gonna be like a bridegroom to you. In Isaiah, he says it. He says in Isaiah 62, five, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And in Hosea 2, 16 through 20, he says, in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal or my God. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. John the Baptist, he also says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, speaking of himself, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's coming for a bride. That's why Paul says that it is so important. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says for us to purify ourselves from everything that contaminates us. Where is that? I have it in here. Nope. Anyway, he says to purify ourselves because Jesus wants us pure. Now, I began to pray Song of Solomon, not really knowing what I was praying before I fell and broke my back. And I prayed, um, draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his inner chambers. And so I was just praying, not, I'm like, this is a mysterious verse, I'm gonna pray it. Don't do that, it's not a good idea. And because <clears throat> he knows what it means. He's like, okay, you asked for it. So this purifying has been happening in my heart. I'm gonna give you an example, because this is funny. I'm a girl, clearly. I, and I lately have really loved dresses. So I get a couple dresses in the mail. I go to bed that night and I'm reading this book called Reese Howell's Intercessor. You should write that down if you haven't read it, except read it carefully. So I read it every night before bed and sometimes I don't like to read it because it convicts me so much. So I just like stare at it and I'm like, oh. So I'm reading it 
get these three dresses in the mail. They were on sale. It was a great price. I got three. I was so excited. Tried one on. It was perfect. You know what I mean, girls? Like, it was perfect. You tried it on. It's the perfect material. It was, like, perfect. So excited. I'm going to wear it to church tomorrow because that's the point of getting a new dress. And I, I'm laying in bed. I'm reading Reese Howells. And all of a sudden, the Lord's like, hey, you like those dresses? I'm like, yeah, I love them. He's like, yeah, you're going to give them away. I'm like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, they're not yours. I was like, I put the book away. I'm like, that's not the Lord. And he's like, he's like, yeah, they're not yours because you bought them in greed. And like, I don't like greed. I love to give you things, but you did that for yourself out of greed. So you're going to give the dresses away. And the whole, literally the whole night, I'm like, that is not the Lord. And I'm so convicted, so wrestling that I'm like, this is the Lord. So I wake up the next morning and he's like, you can wear one to church, but keep the tag on. And the first person who comments on your dress, the dress goes to them. So I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, what if the dress doesn't fit them? Because that's awkward to be like, here's a dress that's not going to fit you. Anyway, <clears throat> walk into church, Steph Hines. Love Steph Hines. Cute dress, Karis. I'm like, yeah, it's yours. She's like, what? She's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I have to give it to you now. And anyway, and so now it's like a running joke that my friends are like, I like your dress. Do I get it now? I'm like, no, that was a one-time thing, I think. I think it was. Anyway, funny things where the Lord really wants to take this seriously. If you want a pure heart, he will make it pure. It's just going to come at cost. Now, that was like silly, right? That was silly. It was dresses. But sometimes it comes at a cost. This is what Paul says. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent, de serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There is a battle for your purity, but we can be those who walk with him in white, who have not soiled our garments, for we are worthy. And then he says, to the one who conquers, he will walk with me thus in white. To the one who conquers, what are we conquering? We're conquering ourselves. We're saying, I'm gonna surrender completely. I don't wanna be halfway alive and miserable I want to fully die so I can be fully resurrected to walk with you. Did you know the whole culmination of the book of Revelation is laid out in Revelation 19.7? He says, the worship team can come up. He says this. He says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. I believe today we're going to have our prayer team come up front, and I'm serious, y'all. If there are things in your heart that you are like, I have not surrendered this to the Lord, there is, there is a call for you to walk in your identity as the bride of Christ, but this has made me impure. Will you come and just confess? There's so much freedom in confession. There's so much freedom in the final giving up of that part of our heart and saying, you can have everything. You know, it was so funny that it was just like dresses, but in worship after that, I felt so free. Wearing the dress that was no longer my own. Thinking, I don't, this is, doesn't have a hook in my heart. It was a little thing, but it could have grown into a big thing. I didn't know it was greed, but the Lord is so kind. And he wants to be so personal to you to say, hey, that motivation, that's not right. It grieves me. I want to have intimacy with you, and I can't when that's in the way. It's not that I haven't already forgiven and paid for the sin, but our sin separates us. So let's go the extra mile. Let's be those who say, I want to be part of the few who get to walk with you. You know, all through the Old Testament, it says people walked with God. It was Enoch. He walked with God, and what happened to him? 
He was not, for the Lord took him. Noah walked with God, and what happened to him? He was saved amid a generation. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. He wants people to walk with. He wants people to walk with, but we have to be able to wear white to say you can purify anything you need to purify. Go ahead and stand up. I'm gonna have the prayer team come up, and then I'm gonna pray, and I'm just gonna ask the Holy Spirit to do what he does so well, which is the kindness of conviction and the kindness of freedom that comes. We confess our sins so that we can heal, right? So God, would you search us and know us as you already do? And Lord, I'm asking that this morning, anything that has soiled our garments, would you come and would you make an exchange with us today? Father, would we be those who get to walk with you in white? What an honor that we get to say we're worthy of walking with you for these little deaths that we're willing to die to ourselves so that you can live. Would you come today? Would you do it?